Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and see what we come up with. So, getting right to it. First quote, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. In some sense, like when you're colorblind, like you're not going around apologizing to everybody for your colorblindness, nor are you doing that when you're deaf. In some sense, he's just acknowledging that there's a brokenness inside of him and it is what it is. And he recognizes that it is a brokenness. It's not, it's not perfection. It's not necess- even good necessarily, nor is it really bad. It just is. So along those same lines, is there a defect that you recognize in yourself that just is? I would say that I grew up moving around a lot. I moved 17 times by the time I got married at 21. I went to eight different, nine, eight or nine different school districts. And so I developed this habit of sort of being able to, or, or wanting to develop friendships quickly because if I didn't develop quickly, I didn't have them at all. I learned that I, I like to rip the bandaid off as quickly as possible and, and enter into discussion and relationship with people. Uh, and so I tend to move fast uh, in relationship. I just want to talk. I just want to be honest. I just want to get past all the preamble. So I don't do well with small talk. I'm not really good with like, how's the weather? Or, um, you know, did you watch the the game this weekend? That Those kind of conversations... I don't have a lot of tolerance for them. And yet I live in a world where that is the, the norm. And so in a sense, there's this, I think there's a hurt inside of me that never really had this ongoing long-term friendships that sort of stuck with me all the way through childhood, save me you know, maybe one. My coping mechanism has been to develop a strategy to get to know people quickly. Um, and, and, and a lot of times that, can, that coping mechanism can be off-putting. I just go straight for it. And if people respond well, it works out well. And if it if they don't respond well, um, then it, it doesn't work. Again, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. Taoism understands in in very interesting ways the unresolvable paradoxes between personal desires and maybe things that collectively are counterproductive. But there's a flaw in that argument, in that position, and that is that not everybody he starts out by saying, I myself do not enjoy the company of children, so you know, I don't like them, I don't probably don't have them, so forth and so on. But societally, of course, we need future generations to continue and all that. Um, but that's not a flaw. That's simply a recognition that there are different things that each person contributes to society. I 
I, I, I am like that, that voice, that Taoist voice that says, I don't, I don't have children because I really didn't particularly, you know, care for the whole childbearing thing. I was a, an artist. I am an artist. I'm a writer. I'm a thinker. I need time. I need silence. I need, you know, to be able to dedicate myself to my work. So unlike a lot of artists and musicians who leave a gaggle of children in every town, uh, you chose well, not to do that. <laughs> oh, I chose way early on. I wasn't going to leave, you know, any, anything of that kind. And yes, there are a great many artists that I know uh, who, you know, because of their, also their desire for pleasure, and uh, they start, you know, siring children here and there and, or having them. And then they are lousy parents, but oh, because I'm an artist. Well, then you shouldn't have been a parent, you know, you shouldn't have, you know, brought that onto, that fate onto children who need you, who need you as a parent. The child doesn't care if you're, you know, Picasso or Mozart or Emily Dickinson, you know, and you have to go and, you know, do your thing. The child needs a parent. I chose not to have children. I didn't want children. I didn't want them because I didn't want to, I knew that if I had them, I would have to stop dedicating a lot of the time that I wanted to dedicate to my art and to my my own development. And I don't regret that choice at all. I, don't, I think that what I chose is what I was, chose me. In other words, I recognize that this is what was going to bring me the fulfillment of my life. And if I hadn't had that, if I had yearned to be a father, that was going to be the thing, then I would have been that. I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. One thing that, that really, really deals with me is I don't think I'm dignified enough as a pastor. I love humor, and I'll go for the humor and the wit in something, and it can be kind of chorus. It can kind of be edgy to the extent that if people don't know me or didn't don't understand me, then they would think that I'm either being smart or disrespectful or whatever. But people know me. They know my sense of humor. And sometimes my wife is the only one that's rolling her eyes. You know, I'll say something <laughs> to a waitress and she'll laugh like, how'd you know that? What do you think? Why do you say that? And my wife is like, oh, don't pay no attention to him, which irks me, by the way. But uh, <laughs> because people know me. So you have the gift of humor, but maybe... I just think at times I should be more dignified as a pastor. I think sometimes I probably embarrass my family and my church. And I really think it comes from the pain that I've gone through in my life. I really think, I just feel like if I can get you to laugh, then you'll accept me. Because mm -hmm. I didn't feel accepted, I didn't feel necessary, I didn't feel loved. And so if I, I feel like if I can make you laugh, then that's a sign that you are accepting me. And so I go for humor at different times. Like I said this at church, at church. I was talking about Mary, and this is somebody else's church. But the pastor's wife is as nutty as me and would say things like, she said something like the, the week before, like, uh, it's time for you to get off the tit or something from the pulpit. <laughs> so I'm up there. I'm with the mic. There's me. Have some words. And so... They were saying something about maybe Mary did you know or something. And I, she said, uh, yeah, you know, you know Mary, the mother of Jesus. I said, yeah, yeah, I know her. I said, I thought they were talking about you because her name is Mary. And she said, 
said, no, the other man, I said, yeah, I know there's a difference between you two because the other one was a virgin. <laughs> oh, man. And they laugh because they, they know me. I mean, they, yeah. people expect me to cut. Growing up in church, I noticed that certain gifts are valued more than others. And the people like, for example, that have that gift to pray real yeah. big or someone can sing people always give them the praise and and we all want to are supposed to want to be like them but you know like the plumber the farmer you right know, all the, these other guys the gifts that, the help they, they keep the building from falling in yeah they get hardly anything and i know as a person who doesn't have any of those gifts that are up on the stage you start to think that something's wrong with you or that maybe God doesn't like you or something like that. Is that something you've seen either personally or with people in your church? I think people think the mic is glamorous and they don't understand the pain of being in front of people, I mean, of being a pastor. They think it's glamorous, you know, and everybody loves you and everybody don't love you. So the people think everybody loves you is is saying that out of spite. You know, they despising you as they're saying it. Everybody loves you. You know, you, you don't love me. Why are you saying that? But I think people glamorize uh, being in front of people. And, I mean, it, I think it's hum- humanity. I think we have a way of doing that. That's why movie stars make the money they make and athletes make the money they make and teachers don't, And you know, because we glamorize that stuff. But Robin Williams, who had everybody laughing, committed suicide because he was so miserable. Mm-hmm. And so I've been kind of, I've always had, though, to me, tears of the clown type thing, you know, really insecure. And people think think I'm so cocky, and, and all that stuff is hiding insecurities, you know. I mean, all the making people laugh and everybody, everybody loves Marvin and all that stuff, all of that's hiding insecurities and fears. I, it's so much better now, but up until a few years ago, two or three, and I've been pastoring and ministering over 30 years, almost 40 years, and tormented every week about something I said or something I didn't say or should have said, I wish I'd said, I hope they didn't misunderstand what I said. I mean, that's for years. And I'm tormented all week long until the next message. And so, I mean, there's nothing glamorous about it. Uh, and I tell anybody, if you're not called to pastor, you don't want a pastor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may look glamorous, but that's that's the smallest part of what you do is standing up and, and ministering for 30 minutes. You know what I'm saying? That's And people do like have little crushes on you and all that stuff. And and they do look up to you, but at the same time, it don't mean nothing when, in the final analysis, mm-hmm. uh, number one, they're not the final judge, the one you have to please, and number two, they don't go home with you at night and see your tears and see your struggles and see your battles. So. Again, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao. I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. Being aware of one's own faults is, is a good thing. Or shortcomings. I probably tend more toward being an introvert, and yet I work heavily with people. So that's something but you've had to get over? I have to play with it. I tend to be very exhausted when I get home. Uh, even though it's not a physically demanding job. I was joking around with a, a co-worker not too long ago. Couldn't remember the term for someone who didn't like people. I discovered and introduced to a 17-year-old the, the term misanthrope. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, this may be a, a bit harsh, but that's probably sort of where I am. And he 
particularly enjoy it because he has similar feelings and is far more angst driven than I am. <laughs> right. So you know you have this uh, you have this quality. <laughs> yeah, this deficiency. Yeah. Um, and obviously, in a world full of people, you've, you've had to get over it. How did you get over it, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, lots of practice. And sometimes being stuck in really bad places. You don't realize what you miss until it's gone. And I've worked in places where the the whole sense of hope is just sucked out. But you're released from that, and uh, you realize, in the grand scheme of things, it's not so bad. And it's not forever. That's key. I'd say, I think we, humans, we think, well, we, one, we don't like things to change anyway. And so when we're in a bad situation, we just assume that's not going to change either. Yeah. And it, it definitely feels like that when you're in a bad situation, even in a mode of production where there doesn't seem to be any end. And you know, you've got hours to go. It's going to end. It can only sustain itself for a while. I think being able to, to look outside of yourself and saying, this too shall pass, is probably one of the, the best healthy things that, that I've adopted. Next quote, to always be talking is against nature. No, no, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that uh, always talking it can be, and is very irritable. My grandfather uh, told me uh, a proverb one time, I guess you could call it that, or right. saying whatever, said, it's better to tune in instead of broadcasting because you'll learn more. And I believe it's true. Again, to always be talking is against nature. I think to experience life, you have to shut up and listen <laughs> sometimes. Have you ever either yourself or known people that because they talk so much they did miss out on something? There are plenty of people that delight in the sound of their own voice. <laughs> and perhaps they need to be still mm -hmm. and listen and realize that it's bigger than them. Mm -hmm. I know several people <laughs> That need to shut up and you have this look on your face that it look it's like it's me. No, it's not you. Okay. So give an example of how they're like you said, missing out on life. Well, I think that people have a lot to offer. And if you're not listening, you miss that. And if you only hear the sound of your own voice, you missed the experience of other people that may be interesting mm -hmm. or educational or it's kind of like a stop and smell the roses kind of thing just you know be still and let things happen to you and experience it all if you just keep slapping your jaw i think you're going to miss something it, you're married and yes. in your relationship is there one that talks more than the other absolutely <laughs> It's been that way for 40 years. Really? It's not going to change? No. Okay. I'm the talker. You are you are the talker. I am the talker. Uh -huh. But you listen to your husband? I do listen if he ever chooses to say anything, but he's the strong, silent type. Uh -huh. So sometimes I feel the need to fill the void <laughs> with the sound of my own voice. 
<laughs> Do you feel he would be better if he talked a little more? I think he would be better off if he spoke up a little more. Because sometimes, like, he should have said something sooner. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think in our relationship, it translates into kind of being passive mm. and being not the squeaky wheel. Mm. So I think that it comes across sometimes as indifference. You know, we've been married 35 years and together 40 years, and so it works on some level. Just as an aside, when we were dating, when we were very, very young, he would call me two or three times a night and, and yet have nothing to say. Aww. And But he just wanted to hear the sound of my voice. So that was... So... <laughs> so you like that. Yeah, but then, you know, 40 years later, he's going... God, I wish she'd shut up. Oh, <laughs> just let me get a word in edgewise every once in a while. Again, to always be talking is against nature. Yes, to always be doing anything. <laughs> Is against nature. That's true. I mean, you end up being raw after a while. Yeah, yeah. You can't keep talking. It's like you have to listen. What makes music music is the the sound and the quiet. Otherwise, it's just like cacophony or or one long harmony that never moves. Yeah, I guess it's not natural. I mean, you got. Do you the, know people who can't take silence? I had an ex-girlfriend who always needed to have some sort of noise, but she couldn't stay in the quiet and one day I said you know that's not that's not normal if you're, you're always trying to have sound around you it means that you're not comfortable being with your thoughts you're not comfortable being with yourself this is what you said to her uh huh and you're gonna it's like you probably have issues with other people cause you probably have an issue with yourself I think I put it in like a third person like perhaps like I didn't just come straight to that just like that but that was just the line of thought how did she react to that she always listened to me she would, okay. she would listen to what I said. She didn't like throw a plate at you or anything? No, no, but she would. It didn't hurt her feelings? No, because she, she, she liked Buddhism, but she found that she couldn't contemplate, she couldn't meditate. Yeah. and So maybe that's why she was attracted to, to Buddhism, is she prefers noise. Yeah. Was she trying to rectify that, you think? Yeah, she was trying to recti- rectify it, but she found that like she liked the philosophy of it, but when it came time to the practice of it, she just couldn't get there, couldn't get there yet. If you're coming from a utilitarian perspective, and that's kind of where you live, and a lot of us do, then it's good to have something on the outside that goes, you know, perhaps this is enough for the time being. Baby steps. Yeah. Yeah, We always got to start someplace. Again, to always be talking is against nature. I mean, you need to express your opinion, but you need to listen to the others. And uh, get their opinion because they have a right to say what they think. You know people that just all they do is talk and never listen? Yeah. Do you hang out with them much? No. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever feel like you talk too much? I probably do sometimes. Do you catch yourself talking too much? No, I probably run out of words after so long. <laughs> Final quote. The wise man puts himself last and yet finds himself in the foremost position. Remains outside but is always there. 
Isn't it true that because he does this not for his personal ends, that his personal ends end up being fulfilled? Like where Jesus says, uh, if you ever go to a party, make sure you sit furthest away from the seat of honor so that you can be called to the seat of honor. And it kind of sounds like he's saying, like he's giving you like an unethical life hack, where he's saying, uh, hey, if you want the seat of honor, and that, you know, if that's your motivation, then uh, play a little mind trick on your host and sit the furthest away so he has to call you up and make even a bigger spectacle of what a guest of honor you are. It sounds like what, what that is is just kind of dis- discovering that your life, you're not the center of your own life. As weird as that sounds, like y- your life would become more full if you're not totally worried about your own your own honor and being your own recognition and being seen a certain way. And the less concerned you are with those things, the bigger your world is to be able to experience more and all that. I think it just has to do with like what humans think of as successful, what humans think of as honorable. I mean, it's just over the years, you just kind of learned that uh, the more you try to steer things, the more, whether you're, you know, working in an organization or we're involved with like a couple of organizations in, on, in the community. And one of them I got voted to be president of, and I did not want to be president of it. Well, that makes you the perfect leader, the one who needs to be there, because it's, it's the ones <laughs> who want to be in charge that you don't want to be but, telling you what to do. But it's one of, one of those things where it's like, oh, man, I don't know if I can be a good president because I've got so much other stuff going on. And But they were just kind of like, we really don't have anybody else. So, so ceremoniously, I am the president of this organization, although I do the bare minimum of what a president would do. And we're kind of in the situation where now more people are kind of coming into the organization and I kind of feel like I'm sitting in, somebody else should be sitting in this seat because I'm not really, uh, it wasn't anything that I was really that crazy about in the first place. But I could also see, you know, if like say it was important to me to sit, to list off you know, a president of this organization and a member of this organization and all that kind of stuff to see that stuff is important. I could see like start to be threatened by the new people coming in and uh, not really doing what's best for the organization, but just kind of doing what's best for keeping myself in that seat. And thankfully, I don't really think that way anymore. There were times in like ministry and like other things where I would feel threatened by other people and I'd want to keep my position and I want, you know, I want to be seen in the greatest light possible, but hopefully, hopefully I'm growing a little wiser than that. And when somebody, somebody comes in, it's going to be a much better president than me in that, you know, I don't think, I can't even imagine, you know, feeling any resentment or uh, anything that would make me feel dishonored or anything like that. It'd be like, it'd be like, great, now I can actually enjoy being a part of this organization again. And, you know, just kind of help out and do all the fun stuff and not have to, you know, sit in on meetings that I really should be doing other stuff while I'm doing that. Again, the wise man puts himself last and yet finds himself in the foremost position. Remains outside, but is always there. Isn't it true that because he does this not for his personal ends, that his personal ends end up being fulfilled? Well, the one thing about it in the Bible, it says something about when you go to a banquet, don't sit at at the banquet table and wait till somebody calls you up. 
Something like that, doesn't it? Yeah. What was? Do you remember why that was said? I don't know. A lot of things I don't know why they were said. <laughs> they <laughs> was were just it, said. Was it about but your... basically don't think high of yourself when you enter a room or come into an area. Let someone else decide where your place in life, life mm-hmm. should be. You know, if you're important enough to be at the table, they'll put you there. But uh, I think it was a matter of probably about pride or something. I'm not real sure. Oh, yeah, humility, maybe. But yeah. I don't know that I agree that that always works. I think it's a good policy for a wise man to be humble. But I don't think he should sit back and let somebody else this inferior knowledge and experience make a mess of things either. You know, sometimes the wise man has to come rise to the occasion and intervene and help whatever mankind he can. You know, I don't mean he always sits back and does nothing, but to be humble, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And there are some occasions where he needs probably to keep his mouth shut. When it comes to a time, he, you know, of his expertise and people are counting on his wisdom, he needs to speak up. Say in your work situation, sometimes there's this fight for who's getting credit and then there's also just the fight, like, let's just get this done. Have you ever found yourself kind of sacrificing the truth of how it really went down just to get the thing done? That, that is true. Uh, there are some occasions where there are a, a blunder or a make a mistake is made. And is there a tendency for some people to stand and argue about things and try to figure out who's to blame? Many times we said, well, let's take care of the customer first. Let's get this solved. And we can discuss that later if we need to. The problem here, of course, we're you know we're we're talking about repairs and things that have to be on schedule, meet demands of the customer. So it's a little different, but it's a human nature to want to try to solve or blame. Nobody wants to take the blame, and they can be blinded by their own by themselves and not really see that maybe they're part of the problem. But anyway, rather than it really at that time at that time, there's no purpose in trying to find the blame. I said, some of the phrases I use, Tom, let's don't worry about the blame, let's worry about the cure. Let's get it fixed. And uh, once we find out what was wrong, then we'll discuss that together and learn from it, you know. But picking each other apart is not good and it's not healthy. It's not good for the customer because they're standing out there waiting for their job. I have found it easier to give people credit for stuff maybe they didn't do. It's still hard sometimes when you've, uh, you've expressed uh, a thought or an idea to somebody, then a day later, all of a sudden, you, you find out they've they've taken ownership of it and taken credit for it. It's kind of hard to, to do and find out people have, uh, what's the word, when they steal your speeches and all that, you know? Plagiarism. Plagiarism. Yeah, it is hard to take. And I don't guess if you really get over that, you learn to accept it and go on. But as far as having people work for me, I, I find it easier and easier to give them credit for what they did, you know, some people will never do that. You know, if I have to answer to my boss, I try to say, well, so-and-so will come up with a good idea. Obviously, they can't go to him with it. But I always try to let them know who did it for the right reasons. And sometimes I, I embellish a little bit. I say, boy, you know, that guy's really had a good idea out there. Because, you know, I'm at a point where, I, you know, I don't need to make any more points, you know. I'm on my way out, and I'm trying to help other people out, you know. They'll do better work if they feel better about themselves, especially if they feel like somebody's going to give them some credit for it. And uh, I've been the victim of people taking credit for a lot of things I've done, so I know how it feels. So I kind of, I guess, overcompensate. But for the most time, you can't always get all the credit you do. I mean, I'm my own boss, his memory sometimes is bad. And you just have to be humble. And sometimes when you're given direction one way and then they come back and says, well, I didn't say that, and you know he did, you know, 
you can't argue with your boss, and so you take the blame just because of their the power structure, and you want to keep your job. So in a way, you still come out ahead because you kept your job. I kept my job, and I think deep down they know anyway, or they eventually will think of it, you know, or maybe not. It doesn't make any difference. Probably what's important to them more is how I reacted and my attitude and if I cooperated, not so much as remind them that I told you so or, you know, that's your idea. You come up with it and go right. You know, it's just nobody likes to hear that anyway. Again, the wise man puts himself last and yet finds himself in the foremost position, remains outside but is always there. Isn't it true that because he does this not for his personal ends, that his personal ends end up being fulfilled? To me, this is the, I call it the servant leadership position. And this is really how uh, the leaders in my life that have had the biggest influence on me, this is how they've led. And it's inspired me to try and lead the same way. Glenn Kaiser from... uh, uh, Jesus people in res band, you know, when I was a kid and I first heard about him, it was, you know, he's in this band that I love and he's up on stage. But then I find out, you know, and every other day that he's not on stage, he's living in this commune and sharing the, all the money with the, the poor people in uptown Chicago. And now I've known him for what, uh, 35 years or something like that. And I've seen the long obedience and the good direction. I've also been friends with the brothers that I pastored with at a church in the inner city in Aurora, you know, and we were pastors together um, in a poor church in a bad part of town, you know, for a long, long time, and we're still family. And uh, when I was a young person in that church, I was 18 when I started going there, and whenever uh, Randy, who was the, we didn't like to call him head pastor, lead pastor, because all the pastors, you know, were were the same level. There was no seniority. It's just that he was the one that was full-time. Whenever he would teach on leadership, I always had this nagging voice that would say, listen, pay attention. You know, this is for you. And I was always like, I don't want to, I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to be a leader. Like I had enough of that when I was building true tunes and I was doing what I was doing. Um, but I always had this voice in my head, um, when we were doing any Bible studies on leadership, all of what the Bible teaches about leadership, all of the pictures we have of it are of things like shepherds, you know, um, and these are not, we don't necessarily relate to these things in our culture because we're not a very agrarian society, but it's not a very, uh, impressive title to use. You know, it's a, a, a lowly blue of the blue collar kind of thing. And I think that it's that way for a reason, you know, that, that we're supposed to be the leading, not only just leading by example, which is critical. We're not telling people to do stuff that we're not doing, but we're actually in the field with the sheep. Like we're, we're laying our life down in that same place. There's all kinds of other metaphors for that, you know, but it's very different than the military hierarchical sort of thing where somewhere there's a general who's not on that battlefield, especially these days, who's looking at a computer screen, mm-hmm. you know. So the wise man, you know, there's just Jesus saying the first will be last, the last will be first. The kingdom economy is upside down from the way we count things. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a lot of beauty in that. But 
I mean, I'm not old, old, but I've been doing this long enough to say that it's not like some sort of great sacrifice because the more you do it, the more you find out how rewarding it is that I feel bad for these rock star pastors who've built these empires or these rock star leaders who have been very successful and had all of this stuff that they ever wanted, but they're totally alone on top of the mountain. That's just, uh, that's a terrible place mm-hmm. to be. I'd much rather be in my living room every Sunday with 20, 25 people. That's mm-hmm. the kind of leadership that, that, um, that you just hang in with for your whole life. But the other thing about this that I like is, uh, yeah, it's not for your personal ends that those personal ends end, uh, end up being fulfilled. We don't know when we're young. We know what we think we want. We know what we want, but we don't know what we need. And so uh, it's kind of like in a wife. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm lucky. I got married when I was 20. But I know a lot of people who get married young, and they think they know what they want in a spouse when they're young. And they just have no idea what it's like, what it's going to be like being with this person for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. They have no way of knowing that. There's no possible way for a kid to understand what that's like, especially if they haven't seen it in their own home, what it's like for their parents to relate to each other. So when you put other people ahead and your your life is, I'm here to serve, literally. Um, I'm here to fix things that are broken. I'm here to tend to people who are needy. The good news is you'll always have something to do. The guys that I served with at the church in Aurora, we even had different denominational backgrounds and different theological beliefs. We were pastors of the same church, and we totally disagreed about theology. And I remember we just had this attitude like, okay, how about this? Once all the hungry people are fed and all the, all the needy people are taken care of, all the wounded people are made, then we'll, we'll deal with all the theological minutiae. Mm-hmm. And somehow we just never got, and, but we made time every so often to sit around and, you know, have a drink and argue about election versus free will. Because mm-hmm. it's fun sometimes to debate when you're brothers, sisters, mm-hmm. and you can debate and fight and have fun and then hug each other and go, yeah, you're full of crap. Go, yeah, I love you. You're full of crap. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back. We and won't see you in heaven. People. But... <laughs> <laughs> right. And what I love, too, is that this kind of wisdom, you see it throughout all different cultures and you see that kind of stuff it doesn't you don't only hear that in christian tradition you Mm -hmm. see this coming from all different religions this is just wisdom and you talk to most most every truly happy old person i've ever met this is the kind of advice you get from them so i've just decided i'm going to make that my mo early (laughs) instead Mm -hmm. of late never heard anybody say oh i wish i hadn't served so many people Again, the wise man puts himself last and yet finds himself in the foremost position, remains outside but is always there. Isn't it true that because he does this not for his personal ends, that his personal ends end up being fulfilled? In, in one way, the wise man puts himself last, finds himself first, is sort of the last will be first way of, of doing things, right? I mean, there is kind of this irony, but isn't it one that we have to wink away from? Like, if, if, we, if we rely on it, doesn't it become untrue? Well, explore that. What, why, why do you think that? You've met people like that 
work super like you're cleaning up after a picnic or a family dinner you know or an event or something and there's people that work furiously hard to actually avoid doing any work right you've yeah. got these sorts yeah. of folks right yeah um they they look like they're active but they're actually not producing anything and it's this really kind of weird and neat laziness i mean it's within my heart i assume it's others to actually avoid doing useful things and talking and doing something else instead so this is kind of like way that we bend ourselves away from this, I think, so that if we were to be putting ourselves last for the purpose of being first, ultimately, I think it would break the principle. There has to be self-forgetfulness built into this principle. Because, I mean, isn't it very much true that the systems and economies and social societies and clubs and education structures and everything we have suggest that or show us that people at the lowest parts don't tend to suddenly flip to the top parts as much as the American dream inspires, right? So in one way, like all of society grinds against this truth. And yet there is something truth that uh, truthful about um, that someone who who um, puts themselves last and then finds this other kind of first placement. It's just not always like a one-to-one relationship with what you're trying to do. So in, in one way, I think if you're approaching this principle, like kind of like a spiritual principle of putting oneself last, if you have in your mind that you can then be first, then I think that's what breaks it. I think that breaks the principle of it. I got you. Okay. I think, you know, we see that, like, I want large corporations to donate money to good things, right? Or what, I don't want to stop that. But, you know, when they put the wing on the new hospital with their large corporate logo or something like that, we recognize that this is that principle of putting themselves last and then ending up in first intentionally, right? We we feel like that's a kind of wrongness to it. Sure. Uh, and and so on the kind of that spiritual principle of how we approach things, we, we have to be self-forgetful. And yet I want to still say this principle is sort of true in the in the universe, even though all our systems seem to to break that. So that actually people who are in last place in the education line often still end up in last place when it comes to the job line, that kind of thing. It's always been this conflict about, I want to be a virtuous person, but just sure. saying that or thinking that, it's really a little bit unvirtuous to, to even think that. Is that a little bit what you're saying? There's a little bit <laughs> yeah, of like ego involved when I to, say, I want well, to be yeah, virtuous. Like trying to be humble is sort of a problem, right? Yeah. Um, I'm very humble. Like, I'm very, yeah. very humble. I'm one of the humblest people you ever meet. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a badge, actually, that says says so right it's yeah. a i want a contest yeah. <laughs> I, I wear that badge all the time That's right. but i mean doesn't the thing then like uh, you know we bring up humility isn't there really something then that suggests that something classic like pride as being the central sin or something like that so let me take it to another direction because i when i misunderstood what you said i, I did think about this so uh, if everyone is putting themselves behind each other let's say you had a, a situation where we know, of course, because of human nature, that's probably never going to happen. It's always just a, a, a minority of people that are uh, being humble or submitting themselves or pe- people you never even know that are behind the scenes, you know, becoming mm-hmm. being selfless. But just say, what if everybody was putting themselves below each other and it would become this big contest? Could a society continue to function if everyone was in a race to be humble and to be selfless? <laughs> Gee, maybe we are the human race. Maybe we have to race. I guess it's like even the race image there shows that there's a competitive element to this. And I don't know that we can get away from this. Like, I mean, I think we are like Darwinian species in that sense that there is in us the want to find winners and losers. Mm-hmm. 
And so as long as that's it, I don't know that we'll ever find like a society principle based on the last will be first or something like that. Right. I have seen like micro societies, communities where people don't where where the the culture of that business or organization or club is not to put oneself at the center you know and so in a very soft way of example i've seen i've seen that kind of work out in like little things i mean we're speaking in the age of tv preachers and right. stadium churches and walks of fame and well that's and, a great point because yeah. we only know what's visible and so a, a person that would follow this pro- proverb to the T, we would never know they were doing what they were doing, probably. You know, it, yeah. it goes back to what Jesus said, like, if you're going to do your good works, you know, don't be like the hypocrites and, you know, announce it to everybody, you know, do it in secret and quiet. And I will say when I was a social worker, this is going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. Uh, well, I'm not saying this to, to trumpet my own horn because I was being paid to do it. So I don't think it was very noble, but I did see a lot of people who were not being paid and they help people just on their own volition it made me much more optimistic about humanity because it's people you'll never see on the news, you'll never read about. And and when you say something about like, it'd be great to someone do a newspaper article on this guy. And then they're like, no, 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 uh, that would mess everything up, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I wonder like, you know, for all like Hollywood and New York and, you know, Wall Street and, you know, um, uh, you know, broadcast news, these are the things that maybe dominate our point of view or, if, you know, in the social media world, you know, the superstar tweets and things, right? Mm-hmm. But I wonder how much more of that, like I, I, you know, it's it's easy to be pretty hard on the church in America from a global perspective. You know, being that uh, the United States is the only, uh, you know, Western country that, that has held together like hyper-technological advancement, modernity and pro- progress with traditional, relatively traditional uh, historical religion, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody else has either gone post-religious or something like that. So um, it's sort of an intriguing uh, project. So what we end up seeing in the world are like all the stupid things that American Christians do. That's what ends up on the news. Or the superstars with the, the bad hairdos and the, <laughs> you know, and the private planes and all that kind of stuff. Right. So that's what we see. Um, and I once wrote an article that said something like, turn off you know, CNN and actually talk to American Christians, right? Like just basically saying, pull back and see what the street looks like. Because I suspect that ridiculous amount of the psychological support of normal Americans is being provided by churches for either free or a sliding scale cost um, or, or church or parachurch organizations. I suspect that the food uh, safety net in America is largely supported by churches, parachurch groups, church-supported missions, and, and Christians who are just, you know, giving out soup and sandwiches, you know, or taking care of neighbors. Yeah, I can tell you just uh, less than an hour ago, I left a food bank that was run by a church, ran by Pentecostals. And the yeah. Pentecostals, uh, they get beat up more than anybody in, in the, you know, the general uh, consciousness or the, the media, you know. So, yeah, so you're right. I, I think the, the true heroes we'll never know about. And uh, and that's probably the way it should be, although it does skewer our view of evangelicals or Christians or however you want to put it. This is something that, um, you know, liberal and, and conservative and fundamentalists and Pentecostals and, and Catholics are, are all generally doing together in the United States and other places, too. They're, they're generally 
creating these structures, sometimes individually, but often together, um, you know, uh, in these soup kitchen lines uh, and basically supplying, uh, you know, charity structures while the, you know, large, big name political Christians are battling on either side about how the structures work or, or, you know, whatever. right? Right. So I actually don't want to deny either. It's just that. You know, I, I guess we're we're a little far afield, but I suspect that the last will be first principle works pretty well. I think in that on the street reality is that in my experience of of these large suburban uh, American churches, as they do a tremendous amount of charitable good, mm-hmm. um, the foster care network in some places is is almost has a large percentage of people from churches that are part of that network. For oh, example. Yeah. Homeschooling supports, uh, you know, education, private schools, uh, hospitals in some cases, right? You know, like it used to be orphanages. We don't have those anymore, I guess. But you know, that that there's other needs that we have. And the source of the quotes. I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. It's by C.S. Lewis, a 20th century British scholar and writer known best for his works of fiction, including the Chronicles of Narnia, in addition to his Christian apologetic works. The next quote, To always be talking is against nature is from the Tao Te Ching, chapter 23. And the final quote, The wise man puts himself last and yet finds himself in the foremost position, remains outside but is always there. Isn't it true that because he does this not for his personal ends, that his personal ends end up being fulfilled? Is also from the Tao Te Ching, chapter 7. The Tao Te Ching is the chief work of the Chinese wisdom tradition called Taoism. Legend has it that the librarian and sage Lao Tzu was attempting to exit China, but the guard at the gates would only let him pass if the old man would leave behind all the wisdom he had acquired. And so Lao Tzu returned a day or so later with a scroll made from bamboo strips, which would be the text that would become known to the world as the way of virtue. That done, the scholar was on his merry way and was never heard from again. If you'd like to learn more about Taoism, we do a series within in the corner back by the woodpile called The Tao of Tao, which started way back on episode nine. In the corner back by the woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Thank you.